welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Indigenous communities have deep connections to their physical and environmental history and have been studying and preserving it for tens of thousands of years. Many are now generously sharing their knowledge and understanding that's passed down from generation to generation with non-Indigenous archaeologists, anthropologists and paleontologists, helping us all to better understand our country, community, culture and history. Dr Chris Irwin is a research fellow at Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. He's also off to work for the Smithsonian Institute in the US next year. No biggie. Working with local communities and experts in oral tradition in Papua New Guinea, Chris discovered that Western archaeological methods weren't necessarily covering new ground. Let's hear from Chris. Hi, I'm Chris Irwin. I'm a research fellow at Monash Indigenous Studies Centre uh, and I work in partnership with Indigenous communities to investigate their remarkable landscapes in Australia and Papua New Guinea. Dr Chris Irwin, welcome. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Susan. What do you think is wrong with some of the way we explore our history? Yeah, I think the way potentially some of the ways in which we explore our history in Australia can be very confusing, obviously, because it's a colonial settler nation in which you have uh, First Nations, so Indigenous communities, who are essentially advocating for their own uh, heritage to be controlled by them and explored by them, I think. So that can be a tension, um, but I think that's something that is gradually in sort of universities and museums is moving now towards uh, Indigenous control of those um, sort of uh, aspects of exploration. You work with Indigenous people on archaeology and you've had some unexpected insights. Tell us about what you've learned through your research. Yeah, so in uh, sort of early 2015, I started my um, PhD um, archaeological research on the south coast of Papua New Guinea uh, in a place called Orokolo Bay um, and sort of arrived there um, with colleagues from the PNG National Museum and Art Gallery who uh, regulate cultural heritage work in that region. And um, we arrived, you know, we did the kind of typical archaeological things, sort of set up a research partnership with the local uh, village communities, um, very keen to be on board with that research. And then we um, headed off and did some sort of initial surveys um, and with a view to doing excavations. Um, but I think during that process, it really struck me that people had already had this intimate knowledge, not only of what was kind of sitting on the surface, like cultural materials, things that the ans their ancestors left behind, um, but also what was underneath the ground in the mm. subsurface, which I guess in sort of Western academia, maybe we tend to think of um, as being the domain of archaeology. And how had they come across it? Just by digging or? Yeah, that's right. So by digging in kind of smallholder agriculture, um, which is in the Pacific known as gardening. And so digging beneath the surface every day, just this kind of um, almost a habitual process of digging beneath the surface. And in that process, they're coming across um, heaps of um, earthenware pottery sherds and also these distinctive thin lenses of black sand um, beneath the surface. And so they then, they have these kind of interpretations of those different things. So the, the pottery is like, it reminds them firstly of where their villages were and where their, their ancestors were cooking and settling, um, but also of this trade that went on with people um, from 400 kilometres to the east um, maritime people who would sail in year on year for the past several centuries uh, and forge these kind of long-term relationships with people. 
Um, and then the black sand had a more kind of cosmological significance. It's like from the time the very earth was being made and that kind of local landscape for people. So you went in as a PhD student thinking we're going to work together and we'll dig together and we'll uncover these things together. And then you get there and they're like, oh, no, we actually, we've done all that. We've been doing this for a long time. Why don't we tell you what's going on here? Absolutely. It was an amazing experience in and kind of masterclass in listening, I think, you know, in research uh, and in archaeological research with Indigenous communities, that is absolutely crucial. Um, and so then you can build an amazing project together where you go, okay, well, what are, what are some of the things we don't know and what are some of the things you'd like to, to find out that are kind of side stories there which sit um, neat, kind of nicely alongside the oral traditions. And how's it changed the way you approach research now? Yeah, well, as I said before, I guess it, it, I guess it was this amazing masterclass in listening, sort of, uh, you know, having the humility to sit and go, well, I'm actually not the expert here. I have some, you know, technical expertise that's going to contribute some new angles to the story potentially, but, um, you know, always approaching those that kind of research as a partnership where you're learning from each other. What do you think is the most important thing you learned? You said you've learned the, the important role of, of listening, but what else do you think you've learned? Yeah, so I think I've learned that in archaeology we can kind of come at it from an approach of like here's the Western archaeological um, knowledge and, you know, we work with the subsurface and this is what kind of what we'll contribute to a project. But then actually, uh, you know, Indigenous people on this project were saying, well, we already have significant knowledge of the subsurface. And I think for me that kind of highlighted that we have these kind of parallel almost kind of scientific knowledges within different societies and there's a lot for those different societies to learn from one another. Um, you talked to us about the process of, of, of how you um, would approach your research in partnership with, with local Indigenous communities and First Nations people. What is the actual thing you research? Are you looking into the, the deep history of Indigenous people? How far back do you go? Yeah, so it depends, I guess, on the the research questions and as you're sitting down in, in that kind of those initial meetings to establish a partnership, that would be the kind of questions you're saying, well, what is it that you'd like to find out about your own heritage and, and history? And so, you know, it's going to vary um, different kind of contexts. So on the south coast of PNG, you've got these kind of sort of 3,000-year-old sand ridges on which people have been living for about that time. So that's going to be probably about as far back as you're going to track the histories. But then, um, you know, people in that region of the world, they're fascinated in trying to apply the carbon dating to see how that sits alongside the genealogical reckonings of because their ancestors move from place to place to place. And so we would sort of go to each of these places and sit there and tell stories and talk about um, what that place was like. And then they would go, well, well, why don't we do a dig here and find out because we've heard the stories of there being, you know, an, an ancestral house here. So let's actually find that out. And would you find those things? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's strikingly these sites, you know, fit very closely with these genealogical reckonings, you know, sort of 400, we'd be excavating a 400 year old kind of ancestral house site. And sure enough, you know, beneath the surface, you're finding the, the traces of those post holes uh, beneath the ground, which is a pretty exciting moment for, you know, all of us as right. we're kind of digging that together. Yeah. And I imagine perhaps for the local people, it was um, a welcome discovery, but perhaps not so much of a surprise as it would be to say to us because we are not a people that have a strong oral tradition. We don't memorise stories and pass them down. And I wonder if for people, you know, the average Australian, 
we'd think, well, how reliable are these stories? You know, it's is it a bit sort of, you know, just passing along whispers and things get lost? Whereas for communities that do have strong oral historical traditions, there is an absolute um, confidence in the the tightness of mm. protecting the information. Were you surprised at how accurate they were? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I was overly surprised. I mean, there's, there's been other research in the Pacific, I suppose, has shown broadly the same thing in terms of that sort of people have an amazing genealogical reckoning of these places. But I think what what was amazing to me was this revelation also that almost people's local form of archaeology plays into how the oral traditions are like maintained and revivified. You know, it's like an amazing process as they're digging in these places every day. It plays a role in how they're remembering these places. Do you get a sense of the kinds of people or the kinds of communities that lived when you do your excavation work or you're digging, do you get a sense of who they were? Yeah, I think through the stories, you know, these, these places are kind of enlivened, you know, as we're kind of sitting there talking with elders about the, the histories that connect those places. That's an amazing kind of, um, you know, these these archaeological sites as we're digging them are almost like theatres where, you know, people are there and kind of engaging with the stuff as it's coming out of the ground and, and telling stories. So that really does revivify, I think, the past in that sense. Based on all the research you've done of communities of people that, as you said, 3,000 years, however many thousands of years, what have you learned about what it means to be human? I think maybe, and, you know, I'm sure this shows my bias as a researcher, but I think that people are inherently social and that they're, you know, the drivings, the reasons why people settle in places, the reasons why they establish these long-term, you know, social relationships with people 400 kilometres away by sea. You know, these are no simple undertakings, but it's like people are driven by conducting ceremonies with other people and by just the friendships that come along with these kinds of things. Which, when you think about what we've been through with the pandemic, mm. has sort of put that into a sharp relief. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? It's sort of the drive for person-to-person -person connection is, is huge and is very detrimental to people's well-being when it's not there. It seems like it's innate. Yeah, absolutely. Why are you so passionate about what you do? I think I'm passionate about what I do because, I mean, it's just striking. Like I think when working, uh, you know, having the privilege of working with uh, Indigenous people on their um, heritage sites, um, when they are kind of devising a project, we're work when we're working in partnership, you just can't be help but be struck by, um, I suppose, the presence of their ancestral landscapes and the, you know, archaeology does have that excitement of discovery, you know, discovering together, uh, literally, unravelling and uncovering the past. You talked about how on your PhD you sort of had this this realisation of a need to change the way you thought about research. If you hadn't changed or if we as researchers hadn't changed in that direction, what could have been lost? Yeah, I think so much could have been lost. I think um, obviously, you know, within archaeology and so many disciplines have gone through um, primarily because of Indigenous activism in this space, have gone through a real reckoning and a process of going, well, actually, the control needs to come, you know, needs to be seated within these communities. And they're the hosts. And 
if they're inviting Indigenous or non-Indigenous researchers to work with them, that's their prerogative. Um, and I think we've gained an amazing amount um, from that. I mean, the example I can think of um, is the Gunditjmara's World Heritage Bid over in Western Victoria, and that's an example of an in- Indigenous-led project right from start to finish, you know, sort of a they talk about it being like a two-decade journey from first thinking about that and then inviting um, sort of Monash Uni archaeologist Ian McNiven to work with them a bit on the um, the antiquity of the eel traps that they have over in that, that side of uh, Victoria and then, um, you know, all the way to actually taking that, um, that bid to UNESCO and being successful. I think, you know, that's such a rich story and um, a place that so many Australians are going to be enriched by visiting and hearing those stories. So we would have lost that, you know, if if all of the knowledge had been seated with these kind of Western academics kind of thing. Dr Chris Irwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Susan. Professor Lynette Russell is the director of the Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. Lynette explains how First Nation cultures preserve and study history differently and what we can all learn from their methods and approaches. Here's Lynette. Hi, uh, my name is Lynette Russell. I am a Laureate Professor in the Faculty of Arts in Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. I'm an interdisciplinary historian, so I do anthropological history, which is really a history that tries to not only teach us about the past or learn about the past, but also understand what people were doing, what their motivations were, Uh, And I work closely with archaeologists and other disciplinary specialists. I'm also the Deputy Director of the Centre of Excellence in Biodiversity and Heritage. Professor Lynette Russell, welcome. Thank you. You're a historian, but you also work closely at the interface of science. Why do you think it's important that those two disciplines talk to each other in their research? I've been long concerned about um, the level of science literacy in our in our communities that I think a lot of people don't know a lot about science. And I think the best communicators are actually humanities scholars. So sometimes it takes a humanities scholar to, I guess, translate some of those science concepts, particularly around things like ancient great huge time depths such as, you know, 65,000 years of Australian occupation. So things like that, it's always been really important to me because I am a historian and I am good at telling stories and telling tales, which is what we do, that it's an opportunity for us to work closely together. Mm. Uh, And I'm very fortunate in that um, I'm the Deputy Director of the Centre of Excellence in Biodiversity and Heritage, which is our, our primary aim is to merge what we call the humanities and social sciences with the, the the science, technology, engineering, maths. What do you think we can learn about ourselves, what it means to be human, based on the research that you do, that deep research, that deep time research into early human civilizations? Well, we are probably the only species on the planet that worries about our past, that thinks about it, that is really engaged with it. But only, not only do we think about our past, we think about our future. So we're both planning forward and looking back at the same time. To me, it's vitally important that we understand as much as we possibly can about the past. Uh, the past is, it is a foreign country, as they say, but it's also filled with mysteries and wonders and extraordinary um, human endeavour and wonderful stories. So that's why I think it's a really exciting thing to do. What would we lose if we didn't do it? 
we'll probably lose the capacity to tell those stories and I can't imagine anything that would be worse. Mm. You do a lot of research uh, with Indigenous communities. What are some of the ways that they record or preserve their histories that we should be learning more from? Well, that's the best the best example of that is around climate. Um, Aboriginal communities in particular um, have long traditions of telling stories about climate change and they've built into those stories ways to accommodate the climate. So where we might think we have to have everything written down in a book and we need science to test it, they can tell us stories that are many thousands of years old, stories that have been handed down and given primacy because they're so important. Stories of things like the sea level rising or times of seasonal changes or a certain animal used to be here that is no longer here. All of these things are inscribed both on the landscape and into the stories that people tell. Is it hard to convince a non-Indigenous audience about the accuracy of oral traditions? Because we're not a, we are not now certainly, we're not a, tr- the, we're not a tradition that memorises things. So I wonder if it's hard for non-Indigenous people or people who don't come from primarily oral traditions who are phenomenal at just memorising huge mm. amounts of uh, information or stories or details. How do you convince people that this is in fact as accurate as what you would find in an old book written down? I think because it's the history is embedded in the landscape and people can tell you mm. that, you know, they will observe a phenomena, say a rock or a tributary or a river or a tree or, or something that they have been told about. So from generations and generations and generations, mm. that then comes to stand for the, the story, stand mm. for the knowledge. I think people are getting more inclined to listen um, I think in the non-Indigenous community is getting more inclined to listen. I think there's there's been a tremendous shift and we know there's lots of criticisms, uh, you know, associated with people like, say, Bruce Pascoe doing his amazing work thinking this stuff through. But I think the... Well, I would suggest that the number of books he sold would indicate that lots of people are at least interested. And I think that there is a shift, a real shift, and people are now listening and starting to take these things at necessarily face value but at a deeper value. Mm. And do you think it's could part of that be because we are finally crashing into the limits of Western understanding of things that, that there was all for so long there was this idea that Western understandings were the primacy and, and, and the ultimate and now we're starting to face things which our way of doing things it's just not it's it's exacerbating the problem as opposed to fixing it so we had to sort of hit that hard place before we were willing to go, maybe actually we do need to listen to other people as well. I I think there's an element of that definitely. I think we're starting to, society is starting to shift and think that, well, we need to be, if these people have lived sustainably in a place for 65,000 years, um, maybe we should listen. Mm. Um, And I think of something like the tsunami, the Boxing Day tsunami, which was absolutely devastating and horrific. But if you travel through those places now, Mm. you wouldn't know it had happened because their resilience and their capacity to respond and their flexibility is is just built into their societies. The places that haven't responded so well are the ones that are are sort of solid and entrenched and unable to move quickly and flexibly. Mm. So to me, that's the major reason why we should listen. Uh, And also just take this recent pandemic. You know, it's 2020 has been a, a most bizarre year, obviously. 
But if you were to take the statistics of the number of Aboriginal people in Australia and should they have had the pandemic at the same levels as the rest of the country, we would have anticipated significant numbers of deaths mm. and certainly significant numbers of hospitalisations and we haven't seen that mm. because Aboriginal communities knew exactly what to do, particularly mm. those in the rural and the remote um, regions of Australia. They, they shut down quickly. They closed their borders and they said, nobody in, nobody out. We've got this under control. Mm. Um, we need to listen to those sorts of people because they're very wise. There's, there's an enormous wisdom there. Tell us about some of the research you're doing at the moment that makes you really excited. Sure. I'm absolutely thrilled to be starting the Global Encounters program. It's a, it's a five-year fellowship program that's looking at uh, encounters with Indigenous Australians coming from the sea um, in the last thousand years. So we're looking at the Macassans, who were tree pang fishers in northern Australia. We're looking at potential Polynesian um, visits along the east coast. We've got the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, and the Portuguese, and we have an extraordinary opportunity to delve in and look at all these amazing records. And we're doing not just archival records, we're doing other really interesting things, like we're looking at... Um, we're looking at the different vegetation. So what sort of plants did these, these, these people bring with them? For example, right across the top of Australia, you find tamarind trees and mm. tamarind trees are not native to our country. So they were brought here. So we're trying to track things like the arrival of the tamarind tree. And I wonder how many of our listeners would be surprised to know just how many people did arrive here before... British or European settlers did. Oh, and there's there's hundreds and hundreds of, of, of encounter stories, hundreds of them. And there's also um, the tree pang industry, which really over the last sort of 400 years, it's, I mean, it's probably started a little before that, but by the time, certainly by the time Matthew Flinders uh, is going around Australia, he encounters 15, 1600 um, Indonesian, Makassan Indonesian Muslim mm. men. Uh, and of course, that, that they also introduce Islam yeah. to, the, to Australia hundreds of years ago, which is very unusual. And people don't expect this. Uh, I'm going to venture that in the next few years we will stop being surprised by these stories because they are they are something that we all need to know. Yeah, they're our history. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you're looking at plants that were brought into Australia, like the tamarind. Will there be any way to assess maybe? plants or seeds that were taken from Australia? We certainly hope to. Yeah. We certainly hope to, to see whether or not there are similar sort of reciprocal arrangements of people taking things back. So it's not one of the things that people often think of when they think of Australia and contact. It's always people coming. Hmm. No one's ever going. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yet, yet we know for a fact that Aboriginal people certainly hopped on those prowls and sailed back. And some of them even ended up living in Indonesia and, and maintaining families and in all the rest. So there's a whole range of reasons that looking at this stuff is really exciting. And it says Australia was not an isolated place. There's this impression that it was a, you know, to use the famous quote from the 1920s, an unchanging, you know, environment, unchanging people. This is not what this was. This was a place of extraordinary you know, activity. Around the coast, people were coming and going. Mm. It is a remarkable history. Will you be investigating it? I'm imagining through oral stories. 
What else will you be using? Will there be paleontology to look at seeds? What 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 is the, the suite a, of resource, resources you use? I'm, I've got a botanist who's looking at all the botanical evidence that we can find at the moment. We've also, uh, archaeological evidence is absolutely crucial, particularly for that northern Australia where we don't necessarily have unwritten records. So what does that include, that archaeological evidence? Um, excavation of Macassan sites, which mm-hmm. might be sites um, that have had tree pang processed in them, um, habitation sites, living sites. And then there's all sorts of very peculiar things like um, African coins that turn up in mm. the the islands in the far north of Australia. Um, we don't know how they got there. If it was just one, you might say, well, it was dropped, but then another few f- came out a couple of years ago. So there seems to be something happening Wow. Now, they could well have been traded across through Malay into Indonesia and then back down into into northern Australia. We have Chinese ceramics, um, all sorts of unusual Chinese ceramics. Ian McNiven, one of our colleagues here at Monash University, has the oldest date for Chinese ceramics, a very small piece of, of trade ware which dates eight, 900 years ago. So this could well be the start of these early trades and that's in in Torres Strait. Wow. That is remarkable and it is it astounds me that we don't know about this that we don't talk about this that it's in so much of the public Australian imagination. Everything still began 200 years ago. Absolutely. Um and and in fact I'm one of my one of my real passions is certainly out of this this project is that we will change the history books, but we will change the history books that are used to teach kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I went to school, the first chapter was this skinny little three, four pages on Aboriginal people, which was rather pitiful, and the people were pitiful in the way that mm. they were depicted. And then we got to the good bit, and the good bit was 1770. That was it. There was nothing before 1770. And if you think we're talking about 65,000 years of occupation and then suddenly everything starts in 1770. I think the unnecessary emphasis that we've put on the British is actually skewed our history. So quite, um, I think in a way that we can, we need to reclaim some of that. Mm. So consequently, I'm thinking, well, let's look at the last 600 years, the last thousand years, all those other people coming here. Really changing our time frame. I guess if you think of the way we we conceptualise time in a Western context, it's, you know, BC, AD. And we've always sort of had in Australia our BC, AD point was, you know, 1788. And you're actually totally breaking that apart and saying this is not our turning point. No. My argument would be that, in fact, 1788, while it's certainly the most dramatic, mm. it certainly has the most impact and it's certainly for our Aboriginal people, for us, it is, has the the most you know dire outcomes. But the reality is if we go back, people have come and visited our country, our continent, for millennia. And that in itself says that British are just the last of a long line of people who have come here, visited. They just happen to come here, visit and stay. Mm. How could that change the way we see ourselves when so much of Australian conceptualisation is tied up in the arrival of the British and, and conflict with Indigenous people? But if we can totally reframe our sense of self to be one that was obviously starting 65,000 years ago with Aboriginal people and a very flourishing, welcoming exchange of different cultures and ideas from people before white people, how could that change how we see ourselves as a nation? I think think the crucial thing for me is that we 
as this project is multidisciplinary, as I mentioned to you, it's also multilingual. So we're, we're dipping into texts that are not in English and that's crucially important. We've, we have this perception in Australia that our history is British history because it's written in English and it's also there's that focus on Cook and, you know, this is the 250th year. Um, I mean, I, I feel kind of glad that 2020 happened at least... We, we at least knocked the wind out of Cook's sails. But certainly, I think it's going to make a really big difference if we start to think that Aboriginal people were encountering the Dutch and learning Dutch, mm. not English. Right, right. And encountering the Macassans and, and learning le- different religions. And r- exactly right. Lynette Russell, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next time on What Happens Next with practical tips, advice and resources from our experts. I'll see you then.